Today I'll be reading from Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram for, hu for her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was named Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Birid. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. I think it was the <clears throat> author and speaker, David Pallison, where I, I heard this illustration about the Christian life. He said, we are like yo-yos going up and down on a string. Sometimes soaring up in faith, seeing new vistas of the glory of God, rejoicing in the clear goodness of God in our lives, advancing in holiness, but other times we are disoriented in the valley. We can't see where we are, we can't always see the Lord, we can't trace his hand. Maybe a significant trial has entered our lives, financial distress or sickness, or the death of a loved one, or a sin pattern that we thought we were done with suddenly comes roaring back. Or we are sinned against, betrayed by someone who should have cared for us. Or the desire for a good thing that we thought was the will of God is long delayed. We are discouraged and confused and our faith may begin to falter. The thing we have to remember, the illustration goes, is that even as we experience these ups and downs that are common to all of us, God is taking us up a flight of stairs at the same time. He's, he's holding the yo-yo, as it were. And he's mercifully carrying us upward, fulfilling his plan. Well, for us, it often feels like one step forward, two steps back. 
It's a long and windy journey through many dangers, toils, and snares. But God is taking us home all the while. He, he hears us, and he sees us, and his plan cannot be thwarted. Well, as we continue the unfolding story of Abram and Sarai, we find them in chapter 16 in one of those valleys, stumbling in their faith. For the past two chapters, Abram has been at the heights Walking with God, he's nobly and sacrificially rescued Lot in this epic battle. And then the word of the Lord comes to him in dramatic fashion. He cries out to God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring. And God replies, your very own son shall be your heir. He takes him outside to look at the night sky and he says, number the stars if you are able to Abram to number them, so shall your offspring be. And Abram, Abram believes him. God goes so far as to bind himself unilaterally, even to his own hurt, to uphold the covenant with Abram, to give him a land and a people that in him all the families of the earth should be blessed. And this promise would continue through his very own son. But There's a delay. And what we do, what they do in the delay is absolutely critical. What we do as well in the delay of our own lives is critical. Abram and Sarai are a comfort to us in that we can relate to the struggle of faltering faith in this fallen world, but they also serve as a warning. This couple does not respond to their continued childlessness with continued faith in the promises of God. Not in chapter 16. They take things into their own hands and opt for a shortcut that brings consequences for generations to come. Still beyond all hope, we see the Lord's mercy over their lives and in the life of one obscure young woman named Hagar whose life is suddenly swept up in theirs. So we're going to look at the delay, the shortcut, number three, the consequences, and finally, the mercy of God. So first, the delay. Look at verse one. From the heights of chapter 15, we re-enter the hardships of life. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So Sarah, she's 75 at this point. They've been in Canaan now for 10 years, still no child. We don't know why, but Sarah was unable to have children. The, The very first mention of her in the Bible spells this out. Chapter 11, verse 30, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. So in ancient times, a woman's worth was tied to her ability to bear children. You think even of the word barren. Uh, If you had no children, you were no use to the tribe. It was like you were worthless. It was a source of shame. It was even considered a sign of God's disfavor. Barrenness as a condition, even the word barren itself, I don't think I can adequately get at at the weight of the impact that has on a woman's (coughs) life. It's a term laden with pain. You think of Rachel crying out to Jacob in chapter 30, give me children or I shall die. 
You think of Hannah going up to the house of the Lord year after year, refusing to eat, weeping, and silently praying that God would give her a son. You think of Elizabeth in the New Testament rejoicing that the Lord had taken away her reproach among people because she was finally with child. Sarai's condition was another indication that she and her husband lived in a post-Genesis 3 world. Remember God's words to Eve after the fall, I will surely multiply pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Well, this doesn't only speak to the physical pain of labor itself, but the curse on childbearing in general. Barrenness is another manifestation of this. Because of Adam's sin, God brought the curse on all of humanity. But he also mercifully intervenes to reverse the effects of the curse. Sarai will bear a son. But there's a delay. In fact, it will be another 15 years before the birth of Isaac. The timing is God's. So Sarai is right when she says in verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. But sadly, this truthful statement is not followed by a humble submission to the will of the Lord or, or crying out to him for mercy. Rather, she takes things into her own hands. Just look at the dissonance between those two sentences in verse 2. She tells Abram, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It's been too long. I'm too old. God has promised us a son, but clearly it's not happening. Let's help God along with a little nudge. He needs a little assistant. Let's, let's help him fulfill his plan. Let's get things going in the right direction. Let's take a shortcut. And that's what they do. So let's look at that now, the shortcut. You know, inwardly, we wince at this whole arrangement because it's adultery, and it is. Now, we know from Genesis chapter 2, right from the beginning, that there's only to be two people in any marriage, one man and one woman, and the one flesh union is to be between those two individuals only. The fact that many Old Testament saints had one, uh, more than one wife or any number of concubines doesn't mean God changed his mind. The consequences of Abram's actions here will bear out as they do in every case of polygamy in the Bible. You might say, well, you know, Abram and Sarah, they didn't have the books of the Bible, right? The first book written is, is about them. It's not like they could go back to Genesis chapter 2 and Read about God's design for marriage. I grant you that. But it's also true that the uniqueness, the sacredness of the marriage union is something known right from the beginning. All people know this. You think about Pharaoh's reaction to Abram back in chapter 12. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Or, or even in this story uh, we have here this morning, uh, Sarai is the wife. Hagar is the servant. There's something unique about Sarai's relationship to Abram that should not be violated. You look at the pain and the strife that erupts when this union is breached. So friends, the truth is written on our hearts. Our consciences bear witness. We cannot claim ignorance of the truth. 
No, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is what sin does. We craft this muddled middle ground and surely there's all manner of confusion in our own day on these issues of marriage and sex and gender. In Abram's day, it was perfectly legal for him to gain an heir through his wife's servant if the wife was unable to bear children. That was pagan law. It had been done for a thousand years before them. In fact, we have records from Ur of the Chaldeans showing that this was the conventional thing to do. Ur is where Abram is from. So he and Sarai are just doing what everybody else was doing. Doesn't make it right. This couple is not walking by faith in the promises of God. They've devised a shortcut. They chose human expediency over waiting upon the Lord to fulfill his word. So adultery, as heinous as it is, is not the real focus of this passage. The main issue is this couple's failure to trust the character of God and the faithfulness of his word. It's just the fall all over again. We doubt the goodness of God, we question the integrity of his word, and then we take things into our own hands. And the author, he wants to draw our attention to this fact. If you just look at the sequence of the language in verses three and four, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar. Does that sound familiar? Genesis chapter three, Eve saw that the tree was good for food. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She took and she gave, and the passive husband, he just goes right along. Just like in this passage, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. Genesis 3, God condemns Adam, saying, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, It's just like here in verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, I am not saying that husbands should never acquiesce to their wives. Not saying that at all. In fact, in chapter 21, God will tell Abram to listen to Sarah and do what she says. But here, Abram has abdicated his role. He doesn't remind his wife of God's word. He doesn't shepherd her through what is clearly a very painful experience. He just passively resorts to human custom. Took no faith in God at all. So getting a son through Hagar was within his ability. Getting a son through Sarai would take great faith in God to provide what he had zero ability to accomplish. In the last chapter, when the covenant was cut and God passes through those animal parts, he was saying, I will do it. Well, here Abram and Sarai are saying, we will do it. This is us. We don't have the luxury of, of throwing this couple under the bus and claiming the moral high ground. No, we know this pattern very well ourselves. Haven't we all been in such a situation? Have you ever desired something so much that you'd be willing to do just about anything in order to get it? So you hurriedly manufacture a solution, you bypass the word of God, and you use others as a tool to get what you want. 
And has it ever worked out well for you? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. There are consequences. And in this story, there's a cascade of consequences. So let's look at those now. So much like in Genesis 3, we we see the ripple effects of sin. It's a general principle. Sin is progressive. It, It grows and expands unless the grace of God intervenes. So first, how does this all play out in the life of Hagar? Well, the text tells us she's Egyptian. Uh, Remember, Abram had traveled to Egypt during the famine. It was Abram's lie about Sarai being his sister that led Pharaoh uh, to bring her into his house. And then he blessed Abram with all kinds of things, including female servants. That's likely how Hagar was brought into Abram's household in the first place. And notice that nowhere in this passage does Abram or Sarai actually speak to Hagar. They don't even refer to her by name. She's just the servant. She was a slave in Egypt, and now she is a slave in Canaan. She's just a means to an end. She's she's treated almost like a mannequin, like just the baby machine. Just just stand over there and, and perform this function. She's faceless. She's unseen. She's unknown. But now, now she's carrying the child of the most important man in the clan, something Sarai was unable to do. See there in verse 4, and when she, that is Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Hagar has suddenly been elevated to a place of honor, and she now looks down on Sarai, gloating in her new position. Hagar is oppressed as a slave, but she is also a sinner. She is proud. Pastor and author Paul Tripp says, as much as we are affected by our broken world and the sins of others against us, our greatest problem is the sin that resides in our hearts. Hagar needs a savior in more ways than one. But for now, she's a wife of the chief, and she's bearing his son. She has successfully unseated Sarai, and Sarai is beside herself with rage. You just step back, you look at this situation, what a mess. Uh, What did they they expect was going to happen, right? Uh, Just just get another wife and and get some kids that way, right? And, And it was Sarai's idea. Well, one one point to bring out here, sometimes in our attempts to assuage our own pain, we can commit great sin. Instead of lamenting before the Lord and crying out to him for mercy, we turn to human wisdom. But we find our heartache has only doubled and we've brought further damage in the process. Sarai's proposed solution to her shame has only worsened her sense of shame. Maybe you've been there. Spiritually, it's such a precarious place to be. Because we're hurting, we justify behavior that we would would never approve of otherwise. And because we're hurting, we build a fortress of airtight arguments around ourselves. We close ourselves off from the good counsel of others, even the clear words of Scripture. 
And the only way out is to repent and entrust ourselves to the Lord. But Sarai is not there yet. She can only speak of the wrong done to her. You see that in verse five. And you think, what of the wrong done to Hagar? Nobody's talking about that. And then you have Abram, the worst character in the story. Uh, First, he listens to Sarai's advice. He doesn't speak, he doesn't seek the Lord at all. He abdicates his God-given role. He's intimate with another woman. And and then in the end, he absolves himself of the whole situation. Your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. It's really despicable. He doesn't demonstrate care for either woman. He, He just washes his hands of the whole thing. And then, of course, Sarai treats Hagar with such severity that Hagar flees from her. So the tension between these two women, Sarai the Hebrew and Hagar the Egyptian, will continue to play out between their two nations in the days to come. The roles are reversed at at this point, but we know Israel will one day be enslaved in Egypt. And the consequences of Abram and Sarai's shortcut will continue to play out in the coming generations between Hagar's son Ishmael and Sarai's son, Isaac. Of course, she'll be known as Sarah then. We're told that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. Isn't that just a, you wouldn't want that said of your precious baby boy to come. Uh, But what does it mean? We read in verse 12, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So Ishmael will be a strongly independent man. Uh, He won't be subservient like his mother. He'll be hostile. He'll be difficult to work with. He'll be unruly and stubborn, even towards those in his own family. We see in the next chapter that he'll father 12 princes. So these guys are the antithesis to the 12 tribes of Israel. When Ishmael dies in chapter 25, we'll see that same line again. He settled over against all his kinsmen, meaning he lived in hostility toward all his brothers. His manner of life will continue in his descendants. It will be Ishmaelite traders who buy Joseph as a slave and take him to Egypt, where he's later imprisoned, having been accused by an Egyptian woman. Clearly, Ishmael is not the son through whom God would establish his covenant. Ishmael would not be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He's not a light to the nations. Instead, he's a source of strife. So the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman continues to play out, intensifying our hope that one would finally come to crush the head of the serpent and overcome the curse. But as for now, Abram is pinning his hopes on Ishmael. You notice in verse 15 that he names him. It's a public acknowledgement that Ishmael is his son and heir. Abram assumes that God's covenant would continue through this child, uh, which sets up the next chapter when God closes the door on that with the birth of Isaac. And as, as for Sarai, she's not even mentioned in the last two verses. Three times we read the phrase, Hagar bore. So Sarai's scheme has 
failed. She had hoped this son would count as hers, but that's not how it turned out. Clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody's spared in this story. Everyone's guilty, and the consequences are real. And yet, astoundingly, the Lord will be merciful to each one. So finally, let's look at the mercy of God. So when he's 99 years old, God will come thundering back into the life of Abram with the words, I am God Almighty. That's how the next chapter opens. The promises of God will be fulfilled by God's power, not Abram's. God hasn't abandoned Abram. He will uphold his word. And barren Sarai will bear a son. She will say, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And then there's Hagar. God's mercy on her in verses 7 through 13. This is one of the most moving passages in all of scripture. She's been horribly mistreated and and now she's all alone. She's with child and on the run. And then in verse 7, such a precious verse. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Where did the Lord find you? Verse 13, she says, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me, here. So this is where God meets her in the darkest moment, totally isolated in the wilderness, carrying a child and homeless. Another translation is, would I have looked here for the one who sees me? So maybe there's been times in your own life where you've asked, does God even know about the pain I'm, I'm, I'm in right now. If you just meditate on this story, see God's heart for the broken, the grieving, and the outcast. He, he is not ignorant of Hagar's affliction. In fact, he tells her to name her son Ishmael, which means God hears. Every time she'd say his name, she'd be reminded of the character of God and what he did for her. God comes to her and speaks with her by name. No one speaks to Hagar in this story except the angel of the Lord. And that designation, the angel of the Lord, is unique. It's used interchangeably with God himself at other places in scripture. You think of Moses and the burning bush. In chapter 18, we read, the Lord appeared to Abraham, but then there's three men standing at the, at the door of his tent. So we don't know precisely who this figure is with Hagar, but she concludes she's speaking with God himself because she names him in verse 13, El Roy, which means you are a God of seeing. She's the only one in scripture who gives God a name. God has listened to her affliction. He sees her and knows her. He comes to her graciously with a question, just like God came to Adam, where are you? He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Well, she's on her way to Shur, which is towards Egypt. She's going back to her homeland. She doesn't actually tell the Lord where she's going, only that she's fleeing from her mistress. 
God graciously ministers to her, which does include a word of instruction. He tells her to go back and submit to Sarai, meaning she's to repent of her contempt. She's, she's got to change her attitude. She can't look down on Sarai anymore. And we know she obeys because of verses 15 and 16. She goes back, and it will not be easy. The troubles with Sarah will resurface. Ishmael, he's going to start to show his true colors, even as a young man. He's going to laugh mockingly at his baby brother Isaac, and sparks are going to fly again. So this isn't the last time the Lord will rescue Hagar and her son in the wilderness. If you just step back, you look at these two women. Sarai is free, but she's barren and old. Hagar is a slave, but she's fertile and young. Both need the mercy of God. Neither of them are sufficient to save themselves. They're sinners. Sarai has no mercy on Hagar. Hagar has no mercy on Sarai. But God has mercy mercy on them both. Hagar says, I have seen him who looks after me. So the basis of her seeing God is because he sees her. Friends, if you know God, it's because he knows you. We love because he first loved us. God is the mover here. God finds Hagar. God provides for Sarai. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Still, our sinful shortcuts matter. They are a grievous offense to God. And we're not spared all the earthly consequences, but as the Puritan Richard Sibbs said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. God will preserve the seed leading to Christ even through all this mess. God will keep his promise. He will accomplish all his sovereign plan. So if your strategy for finding self-worth has collapsed, you're actually in a really good spot to be met by God. You're in a delay, and you have nowhere else to go except to him. And what will you do? Remember that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Cry out to him for mercy. Seek the, 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 the godly counsel of other friends. Tie yourself to the ministry of the word and rejoice. Paul, he cites the prophet Isaiah in Galatians 4. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Come to Christ. He sees you. Doesn't matter who you've been, what you've done, or how weak you are. He has mercy for the barren, and for the afflicted, for the proud, for the passive, all of us. Let's take a moment now to reflect on these things, and then I'll pray.